This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the library at Texas A&M Corpus Christi University campus is Peter Moore. He's the author of a new book called Carolina's Lost Colony, Stewartstown and the Struggle for Survival in Early South Carolina. Peter, welcome to the journal. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's talk a little bit about you before we get into the book. Who are you? Who are your people? Where you come from? And so forth. Okay. Well, I am a professor of history here at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. I did my, uh, my PhD work at the University of Georgia in early American history. I grew up in Tennessee, in northeast Tennessee, the Tri-Cities area, actually in Carter County. And my connection to South Carolina is my father um, was born in northeast Tennessee, a little town called Butler, which is now at the bottom of Watauga Lake. Uh, His mother and her people were from that part of the state. But his father was from the Sand Hills uh, of South Carolina, and um, he uh, brought his family down there not long after my dad was born to live uh, near the little town of Macbee. And so that's pretty much my South Carolina connection. My dad spent his childhood there, and I think he would say it was definitely the better part of his childhood in South Carolina. So other than that, I don't have a personal connection, but I've, I've written a lot about South Carolina history from the time I was in graduate school to the present. And so um, I feel very connected in, in that way historically. Well, I, I won't tweak you by saying since you're named more and you've got a South Carolina connection, uh, you're not going to claim descent from uh, Governor James Moore, whom you castigate in your book. <laughs> I, I hope not. <laughs> I certainly don't claim it. Okay. How did a boy from East Tennessee, and yes, you went to the University of Georgia, Mm -hmm. end up dealing with the history of indigenous people in 17th century South Carolina? When I was uh, in graduate school at Georgia back in the 90s, late 90s, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do dissertation-wise, but I had an interest in religious history. Um, and sort of the, the colonial backcountry to some extent. And one of my professors, Mike Winship, um, pointed out a story to me about um, a Presbyterian minister from a community called the Waxhaws, uh, whose name was William Richardson, who mm. died under mysterious circumstances. And his, his widow, uh, Agnes Craighead Richardson, was uh, suspected maybe in having a hand in his murder. So According to legend, uh, this was uh, George Howe had repeated this legend in his history of the Presbyterian Church in South Carolina. They exhumed uh, her remains and um, his remains and uh, and made her touch the corpse under the belief that the the corpse would bleed anew if touched by the murderer. Um, Of course, the corpse didn't bleed. It was a corpse. And they put the poor guy back in the ground and she went on. uh, She remarried and had children with her uh, second husband. But this was a really curious episode to me, and eventually it led to a book called World of Toil and Strife, uh, which was a community study of the Waxhaws. Uh, it also introduced me to a character, a guy named Archibald Simpson, who was also a Presbyterian minister in the Low Country, who had been really good friends with William Richardson back in Scotland. He wrote about Richardson's death, a different version of that death in his diary, And so that led me to a second project to edit uh, Archibald Simpson's diaries. took me several years to do that project. And then uh, I I did a biography, a cultural biography of Simpson. Um, His diary was a great resource for understanding uh, religion and sort of local community-based politics in the low country. He was from St. Bartholomew's Parish in Colleton County. And um, had a congregation there at Stony Creek and one at Wilton um, and in Pond Pond. So um, uh, a really rich resource there. And it was a, a wonderful project to work on. So uh, the long and short of it is I've had a lot of experience working on the history of Scots and Scots-Irish in South Carolina in the 18th century. Through this, I learned about this Stewartstown colony and I didn't really know much about it. So uh, I decided to maybe dig in that for a, a, a next project. And 
I discovered in the course of, of doing that research pretty quickly that this was an indigenous story uh, as much or more than it was a, a story of a Scottish colony. Uh, the Scottish colony came and went pretty quickly, but uh, the presence of Yamasee Indians in the Port Royal area really uh, changed the picture a lot. And so um, so that's that's kind of how it ended up uh, back into the 17th century in uh, staying in the low country, sticking with Scots, sort of building on what I had done, but uh, turning in a new direction and working on indigenous history, which I found to be very exciting. Okay, as as we discuss the history of, of Stewartstown, and we really talk about the Port Royal area, uh, mm-hmm. as the, as older historians did back in the 20th century, they talked about the debatable lands between English settlement in Carolina and Spanish settlement in uh, Florida, which at one time, of course, extended almost to the Savannah River. Um, mm-hmm. you've, you've got some key players or groups of players that I think we need to identify for our, our listeners. First of all, let's talk about who the players are on the indigenous side of the, okay. the ledger. Sure. The key players here um, are these coastal towns of South Carolina. Um, they've been called the Kusabo but that's not a name that they called themselves. They didn't really have a collective identity or name. They were very town-centered. Um, they seemed to, to speak uh, at least two different languages, um, and so it's hard to say exactly how they were, were related culturally. But these were people like uh, the Eskimasu, um, also known as the St. Helena Indians, the Edisto, the Stono, the Kiowa, Wimby, there were a, a number of, uh, I guess we would call them tribes or tribelets, living in these pretty autonomous towns along the Carolina coast. Um, and they were quite powerful in the years before the 1660s when the Westo Indians came into the region. These were Iroquois-speaking people who basically were refugees from the Iroquois Wars of the 1650s. They moved, they left the region of the Great Lakes. They came into Virginia, where they made connections with Virginia uh, English traders. Um, They got guns, and they went into the southeast, uh, where they became very effective uh, slave raiders and took other Native peoples captive and traded them to the English in Virginia for guns. Um, Uh, Peter, when we talk about the Indians taking slaves, they are they are enslaving other indigenous peoples. Yes, they are. This is a, a practice that um, is very old, captive taking. And uh, traditionally, indigenous captives were used to maybe replace lost family members or, or augment their populations um, or even kill to take their spiritual power in many cases, to to give away or to sell or to adopt. When the English come into the region, uh, they're interested in, in buying these captives to enslave them on plantations or sell to the West Indies. Um, and so they become sources of profit. They become commodities. Um, and this sort of changes the uh, dynamic of the captive trade, and it does become a, a, a slave trade. And which as many as uh, 50,000 Native peoples were sucked into in the, the late 17th and early 18th century. Well, the West were the ones who really brought this, this capitalist uh, dimension of the Indian captive trade to the region. Well, the West, the fact that they got guns from the Virginians, that changed the dynamic completely in the lower South. Yes, it did. The Spanish, um, who had colonized through the mission system primarily, All of Florida by the 1660s, they didn't arm um, native peoples. And so you have this whole region of of indigenous people who are still using clubs and axes and bows and arrows. But the Westos come in with guns. They had been accustomed to using guns uh, in the Great Lakes area um, where uh, the English and Dutch and French had been arming Native peoples in the Beaver Wars and the Iroquois Wars, and they continued that practice. So that that really did it made it possible for them to really terrorize the indigenous populations uh, of the Southeast and right, pretty you, much have their way with folks in a lot of places. You you mentioned the Spanish 
mission system, and that was the way the Spanish controlled the native population in what is now Georgia. Friars went out, primarily Franciscans, to convert. But when they converted a town and they set up the mission church, they expected labor from the Native Americans uh, and so forth. You want to talk about that system for just a minute? Because it, it wasn't just the clergy coming in and Christianizing the natives. They talked about reducing the tribes, correct? Right. Yes, they did. Um, so uh, the, the first real successes that the Franciscans have in this region is along the Georgia coast with the, the Guale peoples, a really significant tribe in this region. They come in and, you know, the, the Guales are a Mississippian people who have these Mikos uh, who are basically, they're not like emperors or kings, but they, they have some authority over clusters of towns. And they're able to, to get these Mikos to give them access to people uh, to, to preach the gospel and try to convert them uh, in exchange for certain gifts. Um, they use basically trade goods and uh, put them in the hands of these Mikos, and those Mikos can then use those goods to persuade others to sort of go along with the Spanish plan. So um, it's really the whole system is sort of greased by gift giving um, and it, through these elites uh, in these towns who are able to use those gifts then to to bring people over to the Spanish way. And um, there's resistance sometimes. All of these missions encountered uh, revolts um, in the 17th century. The, the military was able to put those down pretty efficiently. That's but the, it isn't that's just the, a, a that's clear one-way street of domination. Right. And we talk, when you um, say the military, yeah. these are Spanish military out of St. Augustine. Out of St. Augustine or in, in various garrisons throughout um, La Florida, Eventually, they, they're able to missionize Appalachia, which is in the, the Panhandle, the Tallahassee area, um, as well as Central Florida, which uh, the Timakua Indians are there. So they're able to suppress these revolts, but uh, it's always a bit of a give and take. Um, it's never a, a one-way street of domination from the Spaniards. They have to negotiate and compromise all the way. And the giving and receiving of gifts in this 16th and 17th century context, it's not like we're talking about gift giving today. There, there's a meaning with what you give and its value and how the receiver takes it and what the receiver then does in kind. Right. It's pretty complicated. But, um, you know, if, if you are able to give someone a gift, then uh, they need to reciprocate that. Uh, if they can't give something that's considered of equal or greater value, then that person that you gave the gift to is then in your debt. So these aren't just economic transactions. These are really about power and influence over other people through giving gifts. And um, giving the gift of a captive, a slave, would, would be the, that would be considered a prestige gift. Um, and, and captives are actually used uh, uh, in diplomatic ways um, because they're recognized as, as a way to, to get people on your side to build alliances and to express your power. Or right, if you give me a captive, how do I, what kind of gift am I going to give you back that's comparable? I mean, that's, you're really talking mm -hmm. about a five-star gift. It's, you, you can't right. get, get much better than that. You can't. And that means that, uh, that you are in my debt now. And, um, you know, if I need a favor from you, then you're going to be there to provide that. Um, well, the, the in the case of, of I, I will say there was a you know the Pedro uh, Menendez de Avilas who was sort of a conquistador who comes in and establishes the colony of Santa Elena in the, the 1500s. He brings a couple of captives to, to Santa Elena and the Orista or or Edisto Indians. They belong to, to their town, and he returns them. The, the Guale have captured them, and they're about to kill them. He gets the Guale to give those captives to him. He returns them to Arista. They're very much in debt to him. That's a huge gift that they, the only way they can really uh, reciprocate it is by basically telling him he can plant his colony on their lands. And and that sort of uh, levels the playing field again. So, yeah, that, that was a big, a big debt. And, of course, the Santa Elena story is eventually the Spaniards said, you got to feed us. And we don't need to get into the Santa Elena story completely, but... Mm -hmm. 
uh, the colony failed. They let them come in, but they kept the Spaniards from getting further inland where the land was any good. Remember, Santa Elena was a, sand. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was. And the, uh, without getting into a lot of the details there, um, the sort of the point of, of that part of my book, um, which really is sort of deals with those coastal towns, uh, with the Indians without a name, I guess. The main point there is that these were powerful towns. They were powerful peoples. They were able to to, in many ways, control Spanish colonization, to try to work it to their advantage. Um, to frustrate the attempts by Jesuits and Franciscans to convert them and reduce them. Eventually, the Spanish guns overwhelmed them, but at the end of the day, there was nothing there for the Spaniards unless they could work with the native peoples, have them as allies and trade partners, and that wasn't going to work under the the system that that the military had adopted. Uh, And so the the Spanish had to basically give up on the colony. Instead of... The Europeans controlling the narrative, the indigenous people are controlling the narrative. Yes, I, I believe that to a great extent they are. At the end of the day, the Spaniards are able to come in and, you know, they sort of, of burn and pillage and kill um, and are able to sort of pacify the towns in that uh, that part of the coast. But they don't really have uh, any reason for being there. This shouldn't be a military outpost in Santa Elena. It's supposed to be a, a hub of, of trade with the interior, a way of connecting um, the Atlantic with what the Spaniards thought at the time was um, a sort of an inland passage that would connect them with New Mexico and even with Zacatecas, the silver mines in Mexico. So they had a, a grand vision for Santa Elena. Um, the only way they could have any control there was just through brute force. And uh, until that time, natives were able to resist. Uh, they were able to control and in many ways dominate uh, Santa Elena. They were, they were powerful. Peter, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Peter Moore from Texas A&M Corpus Christi University about his book, Carolina's Lost Colony, Stewartstown and the Struggle for Survival in Early South Carolina. We were talking about the struggles at Santa Elena, and it was a struggle for survival. And in that case, the Spaniards gave up and pulled up stakes. Yeah, they cut their losses and consolidated basically their Atlantic colonization down at uh, St. Augustine, um, but continued to have some very successful missions uh, in Appalachia and Timucua and and Guale. Over time, those missions declined through uh, disease and uh, to some extent through abandonment by native peoples, but they were still you know pretty strong by the middle of the 1600s. The next thing I'd like to move on to is is the Westos, and mm-hmm. we, we mentioned how they got here, but the chapter that you have in your book dealing with the, the Westos, you called the man-eaters. Now, if somebody's just thumbing through your book, that's going to grab their attention mm-hmm. because you're literally talking about they were cannibals. Well, um, yes. I, you know, I try to make the point in that chapter that the, the real man eaters in this story are the, the English uh, who are buying those native captives from the Westos and selling them to the, the West Indies or putting them to work on tobacco plantations in Virginia. But um, at the time, it was pretty widely uh, believed, agreed upon by, by most of the Westo's enemies, if not all of them, that they practiced cannibalism. And uh, scholars of the Iroquois and of the Westo's have uh, really described this as ritual cannibalism. It was really a sort of a form of, I know this sounds weird, but of, of adoption. Captives were taken. Often women captives who were not so threatening uh, and children would be adopted uh, into the tribe. Uh, Male captives, um, if they weren't killed on battlefield, they sometimes would be ritually executed. And then the community would join in ingesting uh, sort of ritually their flesh 
as a way of taking the power away from those those spirits um, and into themselves. So it was really a quasi-religious ritual um, and not really a source of, of, of food uh, in the way we might normally think of cannibalism. Uh, most of the cannibalism that we see of people eating other bodies for food is practiced by Europeans and the French uh, who were at Charles Fort uh, mm-hmm. starving to death, uh, eat their, their companions when they're dead. Same thing happens down uh, in Texas with Cabeza de Vaca um, and some of those, those guys who are uh, stranded in the coast of Texas and uh, are forced to eat the, the flesh of their comrades um, to survive. The Westos are key to what's going on, and you mentioned the English being the cannibals because of the involvement in the enslavement of mm-hmm. of indigenous folks. And very early on, soon after 1670, Henry Woodard is key to this. He he is one of the most influential Englishmen in 17th and early 18th century South Carolina, and he gets involved in this trade. Because it's one thing that right off the bat, South Carolina can export and make a profit from. Yes, it is. And, and you're right. Woodward uh, is really an extraordinary person. He's a, definitely a key character in uh, the book that, that I've written here. If I could back up just for a minute, uh, one thing that happens is in 1667, the Westos attack the coastal towns in Carolina, and they ruinate them, according to uh, sources at the time, especially the Eskimosu uh, and the Kiowa are are really hit hard. Um, The English show up three years later, and the native peoples are just begging them to stay with them, to be their allies against their enemies, the Westos. And the coastal peoples promise the English that they will help them fight the Spanish, which is what mainly the English are worried about, and that they can also um, become allies against the Westos. So the Westos are English enemies uh, in 1670. What Woodward does is really extraordinary. Just a few years later, he, I think probably at the behest of the Westos, works out a a trade agreement with them. Um, and this this changes everything because the coastal peoples who had been these allies of the English now find themselves pretty much at their mercy. Um, the English have, have made friends with the, their worst enemies. Um, and the, the alliance, the trade agreement that, that Woodward strikes is premised on the, the promise that uh, the Westos will not attack the coastal towns who are the English allies. So so they basically, um, instead of uh, these people being powerful uh, and frustrating the English like they did the Spaniards, they become dependent on them. And we really see a rapid decline in the power and numbers of the coastal towns um, after the Westo invasion and the English colonization. And, and but yeah, he strikes a deal with the Westos, and and he is the kingpin of of the indigenous captive trade and the the animal hides, deerskins trade uh, in the 1670s. Well, I was going to ask you, why did the Spanish never did get into the deerskin trade? That's something the English and the French were into, uh, but the Spaniards were there. They but they don't seem to have ever done that. You know, that's a really good question, and I don't I don't really have an answer. I think. Part of it, though, is um, the Spanish uh, mission system was the sort of the, their preferred method of controlling, colonizing, allying themselves with indigenous people. Um, and it was premised mostly on gift giving, um, Spaniards giving gifts to native peoples and and those peoples uh, basically like peasants growing corn and providing labor for the Spaniards. And so it wasn't this trade in commodities that was so important, but this this gift-giving exchange system, uh, reduction, labor, corn-growing uh, system that was at the heart of the Spanish well, uh, colonial you, society. You mentioned the, the coastal settlements now. Are they protected from being attacked by the Westos? They've come into the orbit of Charleston, and Mm -hmm. you now see them referred to as settlement Indians, Mm -hmm. and that has a specific meaning. They become basically tributary or settlement Indians. Um, They 
again, they, they sort of lose their power. They become dependent on the English, and uh, the English basically see them as subordinates, yeah, as dependent people um, that they can now sort of command at their will. And that is, unfortunately for them, the case, certainly by 1680, if not sooner. See, that's just, that's just 10 years after the first settlement in Charlestown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, didn't, it didn't take long for that it, to occur. It, it didn't. It, probably even less time, because I think when Woodward strikes the deal with the Westos, then there just aren't a lot of options for those coastal towns. They're no longer valued, and they're dependent on the goodwill of the English and their relationship with the Westos for their own security. Well, Peter, let's let's move on to the next chapter, and I think it's the most mm-hmm. fascinating part of the story. Of course, we're dealing with Stuartstown, and that is the the Covenanters from Scotland. And so, mm-hmm. a lot of folks today probably don't understand those 17th century religious problems <laughs> in England and Scotland, but that has, of course, a tremendous impact on what would happen over here on this side of the Atlantic. Those problems are pretty complex. Scottish Presbyterianism is um, is is just like a, a knot, <laughs> tangled knot of, of divisions and sectarianism. Uh, in the 17th century, it wasn't quite as uh, difficult to grasp. Basically, Scottish Presbyterianism became the norm for for Scotland in the late 1500s. Presbyterianism is a form of church government where the church uh, is still a national church. Uh, There's a general assembly that oversees the church, but um, it's basically governed by churchmen, clergy, um, and lay elders uh, from the parish level up to the the presbytery level, the synods, and the national level. It's not governed by state actors. Church of England, since the time of Henry VIII, was headed by the crown. And so the state played a much bigger role in appointing bishops and uh, in doctrinal disputes and practices and things like that. So the Scots, um, during the the English Civil War in the 1640s, the Scots entered into a, a solemn league and covenant where they made an oath to the, one another and to God that they would stand by Presbyterianism, that they would never submit to this Episcopal system where bishops governed the church, bishops appointed by the crown. And they took that oath very seriously. So, so these folks who took that oath were called covenanters because of the covenant that they swore in the 1640s. And when the crown, uh, after the English Civil War and after Oliver Cromwell's dictatorship, was restored to uh, Charles II in 1660, they continued uh, to fight any attempts to impose a bishop style of church governance on Scotland. And we get basically 30 years of of attempts by um, some Scots and English and English crown to impose an Episcopal system and resistance by these covenanters for 30 years. And so the people who who come to Stewartstown and who settle that colony, they are covenanters. And this colony is uh, to be a sort of a, an escape plan <laughs> um, when they think that, that the English are about to, as one of them says, extirpate the Presbyterians out of Scotland. Well, and of course, the fact that Charles II dies and his brother marries a Catholic, I mean, that that begins to play into it. There, there are worries mm-hmm. in Scotland about that, but there are also worries because these folks are being persecuted. Yes. I think we need to understand that the English government, the Scottish government, were persecuting the Covenanters. They were persecuting. They were trying to impose this bishop-run system. Uh, people were resisting every way that they could. In many cases, people would meet in the fields. Um, the preachers that had been kicked out of the church because they refused to swear the oath and submit to ordination by the bishops, those outed preachers, as they called them, would uh, meet in the fields and thousands of people would come to these these so-called conventicles to worship. And uh, these became illegal. A lot of people were arrested. Um, Some were tortured. Many lost their property. 
all for their faith. Um, and so people like William Dunlop, um, who is probably the central figure in the Scottish colony, uh, Henry Erskine, Lord Cardross, uh, another major player. These people are covenanters. They've experienced persecution, and it's very real persecution. It gets a lot worse in 1683 when plots have been exposed involving both Scots and English Whigs to try to kill the king and his brother and uh, and revolt. There's a real crackdown, and it's that context that sets the stage for the colonization of Stewartstown the following year. Okay, well, let's talk about the Carolina Company and how things came about. Yeah, well, the Carolina Company had two main objectives. One, interestingly enough, uh, this has to do also with English control over over Scotland. Uh, You know, back in uh, after the restoration of the crown, Parliament and the king began to streamline the English empire, and they passed these laws called the Navigation Acts, which prohibited uh, trade of other countries, foreign countries, with English colonies. Even though Scotland was ruled by the same king, it had a separate parliament, so, so it was considered a foreign country under the Navigation Acts, and the Scots were excluded from trading in the English empire. The English were at war with the Dutch, and that was another major trade partner of Scotland. So they were pretty much shut out of the Atlantic. They got a, a permission um, to, to pass a law in 1681, a trade act that would allow them to establish a couple colonies of their own um, in within the British Empire. And they did so um, in New Jersey and in South Carolina. So the Carolina Company was formed in 1682 to uh, basically raise funds to uh, outfit a ship to go and do some reconnaissance, scope out the territory, find a suitable place for a colony, and then hopefully send colonists over there to, to make money for the investors in the company. So that was one of its objectives. The other was to provide a, an escape um, for persecuted covenanters. It was a covenanters project and also an economic financial project. And, and so this was a commercial enterprise. It was not going out for king and country to expand the empire. This was to to make money and also to provide a haven. Of course, there were other colonies in, in what would become North America that were established as religious havens too, Maryland being probably one of the best examples as a haven for mm-hmm. uh, for Roman Catholics. Didn't those folks in, in Scotland also think about Central America? Well, there was, uh, there was thought about settling maybe um, on the coast of a Central American country uh, that the British had claimed. Uh, they, they decided on South Carolina instead. Now, there would be, in the late 1690s, about 10 years after Stewartstown fails, a huge venture to colonize the Darien Peninsula, which is basically we call Panama now, but to colonize the Atlantic side of that, not the Pacific, where Panama City is. And uh, like Stewartstown, <laughs> very similar, this one failed, but it was much more spectacular because uh, so much Scottish wealth and, uh, was invested in it. Um, it was supposed to be Scotland's ticket to empire, and it just failed utterly. Okay. We've got the, the Carolina Company now. They're going to establish what they call Stewartstown, and it's mm-hmm. not named after the royal family. Which Apparently, it's named after Lord Cardross's wife's family. She was a steward. Okay. So if you're going to plant a colony, you've got to get a ship. You've got to get a crew. You've got to get settlers. How are they, what, how are they going to assemble all of this? Well, the, the Carolina Company was established to, to manage all of that. Unfortunately, the, the key leaders of the Carolina Company, um, you know, they get this thing off the ground in 1682. They send a ship over. They've got a good start. But then the following year, 1683, the same leaders of this company are implicated in plotting against the king. And so they're arrested or they have to flee the country uh, the company is in a shambles by 1683, 84. The investors are imprisoned or in exile. 
but persecution has intensified. And so there's all the more need for an escape, for a safe haven for Presbyterians, but there's very little resources thanks to the collapse of the company. So, so it is a really bad time uh, for them to try to, you know, to, to start a company. But um, I think they, they felt like they needed to, to do the best they could with what they had. So um, William Dunlop is, again, a, sort of the, the manager on the ground of this company. Lord Cardross um, brings a, a lot uh, to the venture because he's, uh, he's a nobleman. Uh, and they're able to bring, you know, um, oh, 130 or 40 people over in that first shipload to begin to build that colony. Now, like a lot of other colonies, most of the people who came out were male. And wasn't the idea is once they kind of get settled, then the families would come over? It was supposed to be a, a settlement of families for sure. They would put the town together, get things going, and then send for their wives uh, and invite families. They had a, a proposal to basically subsidize families and a whole, entire families under a, a three-year indenture so that they could promote the settlement of families. Up until the bitter end, Dunlop, even after the Spanish attacked and destroyed Stewartstown, still wanted his wife to come and he wanted to restart the colony. So it was definitely a family venture. Okay. Uh, Peter, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners okay. know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Peter Moore from Texas A&M Corpus Christi University, and we are talking about Carolina's Lost Colony, Stewartstown, and the struggle for survival in early South Carolina. All right, Peter, we got the folks out here, but they have physically a plan for the town that they lay out. They did. They had something that can be found in Dunlop's papers in an archive in Edinburgh called Project of a Settlement. They were going to build the church, put it right in the middle of the settlement. They were going to put the minister's houses nearby. Um, They would build the house for Lord Cardross, and then they would build small cottages for different colonists. And each one of those would have a little garden, uh, a little courtyard area. Um, they would also be given land to farm just outside uh, the limits of the town. There would be fortifications. They had um, a pretty well laid out plan for building this colony. The houses for the colonists were all supposed to be identical, right? Yeah, they were supposed to be identical. They didn't want people kind of one up each other, I think. So they would be identical and maybe over time people would be able to sort of differentiate them. The first group that came out here had a problem just like many uh, folks when they you first come out to the colonies, particularly Carolina, which was not exactly the healthiest colony to, uh, right. to go to. Malaria and other diseases took off a huge mm-hmm. percentage of that first, that first group. It did. And um, a lot of the people that were on that first ship, I think about 35 or 40 of those people were actually political prisoners. These were covenanters who had been imprisoned, who, even though they faced death, refused to swear the oath to the king. And so they were, they were sold as um, slaves, essentially, indentured servants, into exile. And, uh, and so they came along uh, with these free Scots, uh, were purchased by people like Dunlop. Uh, to work as their servants in Stewartstown. And I think almost all of those prisoners died because they were really treated horribly by the captain of the ship, a guy named James Gibson, um, you know, on the way over. You know, this is kind of interesting. The Covenanters were fleeing persecution, but when it came to freedom, even for those political prisoners, they treated them as enslaved persons. They didn't treat them as fellow religion, co-religionists. Yeah. Well, that's one of the ironies here is that they were creating a religious refuge for persecuted Presbyterians, but they also needed labor. And there weren't a whole lot of free people willing to come over, and so they took what they could get. There were also different varieties of covenanters. Some were more radical than others. Uh, Dunlop was fairly moderate. But some of the Covenanters that had been imprisoned and sold by James Gibson and put aboard that ship were uh, radicals who felt like Dunlop, even though he was a Covenanter, was a compromised uh, minister. 
and they wouldn't have anything to do with them. So um, there was uh, no love loss <laughs> between those folks and people like Dunlop and some of the more moderate ones. Um, and this may help explain why they felt more comfortable basically um, exploiting the labor of fellow covenanters. When they get here, we now come to the other key group, and that is the Yamasee. Mm-hmm. And they also have moved into this area. They are not native to this area. Uh, And, of course, the Scots and the Yamasee will end up causing the end of your story. Yeah, so the the Yamasee migration is really, really important. A lot of them come from Guale after pirate attacks um, in that region. They fear that the the Spanish can no longer protect them. They see that the Westo have been defeated uh, in war with Carolina in the early 1680s. Um, A lot of the indigenous peoples of the Carolina coast have died off. And so they sort of move into Port Royal, seeing it pretty much as vacant land there for the taking. In 1683 to 1685, well over a thousand Yamases come into Port Royal. There's only 50 or 60 Scots. And so this is a, a huge migration. It really changes the dynamic in the region because now you have this potential for a, an alliance with the Scots who have access to European goods and guns and Yamases, uh, who are seemingly wanting to sort of establish themselves as a regional power, positioning themselves nicely between uh, St. Augustine and, uh, and Charlestown. Um, and no one really is sure exactly what they're going to do. But all eyes turn to, to Port Royal in 1685 when these Yamases stream in and, and, and team up with the Scots. At one point, with those thousand plus Yamasee coming in, that was the largest population group in South Carolina. Yes. There were maybe at most five or six hundred coastal Indians uh, scattered up and down the Carolina coast. There were about uh, a couple of thousand people actually living in Charlestown at the time, but only 500 of them were free. About a thousand of those were indentured servants and 500 were African slaves. And so Uh, This is a really large, formidable population. This is a a migration that the English or the Scots cannot stop. And the Scots cut a deal. They do. They supply the MCs with guns, about 20, 21, 22, 23 guns. Neither the Scots nor the MCs, by the way, had come to this Port Royal with the idea of becoming slave traders. But they immediately sort of enter into this agreement. Uh, in exchange for guns, the Yamases go down to central Florida. They raid a, a mission town called uh, Santa Catalina de Afuica. They take 20-some-odd captives, uh, most of them women and children. They kill 18 or 20 people. They burn the village, and then they uh, sell those captives to the Scots for the guns that they had provided them. So now um, the Yamases are doing uh, what the Westos were doing capturing slaves, selling them to the English, the Yamases are capturing indigenous slaves and trading them with the Scots. And this is something that the folks in Charlestown have no control over. They have no control over it, and they're really nervous about it. Henry Woodward has a commission from the Lord's Proprietors of Carolina, the the folks that govern the colony from England, He has a commission to trade with the native peoples of the interior in the Chattahoochee River Valley, populous towns there of Coweta and Cusita. But he's not not trading with them for for reasons that aren't entirely clear. He's he's had some setbacks thanks to the the defeat of the Westos in the Westo War. So he's kind of sidelined. And then when he sees the Scots teaming up with the Yamases, I, I think he, he kind of figures he better get off his duff and do something or the Scots are going to begin to control trade in the region. The English are really powerless to, to stop this alliance. The Scots have great ambitions. They want to colonize Guale, uh, the, the, basically the Georgia coast that the Spaniards and Guale Indians have abandoned. They want to open up trade with the interior. They want to find an inland passage that will connect them with the Pueblos of New Mexico. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they want to be a regional power uh, in alliance with the Yamases. And it looks like they're positioned in 1685 to do just that. And neither the English nor the Spaniards can stop them. 
but that raid into Spanish Florida, uh, Spain is not going to sit back without retribution. They're not. Nor is is uh, Charlestown and Woodward sort of ingeniously finds a way to establish relationships with um, really key Yamases that will give him access to the native peoples of the Chattahoochee River Valley. And so he sort of beats the Scots to the punch. He goes to work, and before you know it, the summer uh, right after that raid, he is in the Georgia interior in Apalachicola territory, trading with the native peoples there. He's uh, outmaneuvered Cardross in that way. This really uh, unsettles the region. Um, the English trading in the interior, the Scots and Yamases raiding uh, Spanish mission towns makes the, the Spanish very, very anxious. And they, they send in 1686 a couple of shiploads of corsairs to fall on Stewartstown and basically sack it uh, and destroy the settlement, as well as uh, some plantations on Edisto. And the settlers, uh, they did not kill the, the settlers of Stewartstown. They vamoosed when the Spanish came. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Well, they had some cannons uh, and a little fortification in the town, but the raiders totally caught them by surprise. They had some uh, indigenous guides that steered them uh, into a place where they could remain hidden. And before they knew it, the, the attackers were on them. The, the Scots had to basically run for their lives. Uh, Cardross barely escaped. The others hid out in the woods until this, the Spanish raiders abandoned the area. So, yeah, they um, taught completely by surprise and didn't put up much of a fight. They were determined, and they said, okay, we're going to keep going, but it didn't catch on. It didn't. The colony was pretty much done by then. Dunlop had a very hard time accepting that. The English and the Scots want to retaliate against St. Augustine. They plan to basically invade St. Augustine. Uh, they're stopped at the last minute when a new governor, James Colleton, arrives in Charlestown and, and says, if you had done that, it would have cost you your lives because you can't attack people that the, the King of England is uh, at peace with. And they do end up having a couple of expeditions down into Florida to try to negotiate the return of uh, 11 slaves that the Spaniards had taken. But all of that comes to nothing. And the colony dies. Dunlop, Cardross returned to Scotland. After the glorious revolution of 1689, the Presbyterians have their freedom again when James II is deposed as King of England. So they return um, to a land where they can worship uh, as they see fit. And Stewartstown is pretty much forgotten. Of course, not part of your story, but later on in the 18th century, the Yamasee will be a big part of South Carolina history as settlers move in there. Now, there was one refugee from Stewartstown who stayed, Archibald Stobo, right? Actually, Archibald Stobo was part of the Darien expedition from Scotland in the late 1690s. So he wasn't at Stewartstown. Oh, okay. Uh, he, uh, he was part of the Darien expedition, and, and you may remember the flagship of that expedition called the Rising Sun, like the, the colony itself, was... Uh, was basically just adrift. They couldn't even uh, get back to Scotland after the colony failed, so they ended up washing ashore in Charleston. Um, and that very night, Archibald Stobo and his wife got off the ship and came ashore. Uh, a horrible storm destroyed the ship and all the, the people aboard it. Um, uh, they drowned in the harbor. Uh, but Archibald Stobo survived and uh, stayed in Charleston and uh, became a leading figure in Presbyterianism in early South Carolina. The only person that I'm aware of that was part of the Stewartstown colony that established a name for himself was a guy named George Smith, who was one of those prisoners aboard the ship. He apprentices under a trader named Caleb Westbrook and becomes a pretty important Indian trader in his own right. And he's the one that brings the Creek Indians to Charleston to negotiate a deal uh, when the, the Creeks move into central Georgia. So he's somebody who made a living after Stewartstown in, in South Carolina. The towns that would eventually become the settlement Indians, they thought that they were just getting protection from the English. The English thought that they were getting all of the coastal territory from them. But mm -hmm. 
a number of those Indian leaders were women. Yeah, there were caciques who were the male leaders and cacicas who were the female leaders. And to tell you the truth, I don't think we really understand why that's the case in this area, but there's a lot more receptivity among these coastal native peoples of Carolina to having women leaders, uh, whether that's somehow inherited Uh, I suspect that it is, but uh, I don't think that's fully understood. It's very interesting. Peter, I hate to say this, but Alfred's given me the wind-up sign. So are Uh there any last words you'd like to add for our listeners before we sign off today? Uh, I just want to thank you for uh, having me on today. I really appreciate it. I love talking about this book and this this story of Stewartstown and the Yamasee colonization of Port Royal. It's been forgotten by a lot of people. Not many people know about it, but it was actually a real turning point in the history of the region. All right. Well, Peter Moore, author of Carolina's Lost Colony, Stewartstown, and the Struggle for Survival in Early South Carolina. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Peter Moore's book is intriguing. Over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a lot of new work about the indigenous people in South Carolina and their interaction with Europeans where they actually were the key players, not the other way around. It's a fascinating part of South Carolina history and as was pointed out, Stewartstown and that Scottish colony are sometimes a forgotten part of South Carolina history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.